but it may not be the best thing at that particular time. So that's, that's free, and it's New Year's Day. All right, in your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on page 230. Depending on how today goes and whether I think this could be carried over another week, and you'll see why in a little bit, I may carry it over till next week for a part two. Otherwise, if I'm like, no, uh, then I'll go back to Ephesians probably next week. So we'll see how that goes. First Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Obviously, you can only extrapolate so much out of an entire chapter. But, uh, and we have no context, which I'll provide a little bit later, a little bit of context a little bit later on. It reads like this in the English Standard Version. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time past, some twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel and built there an altar to the Lord. That's the entire chapter. 
Uh, there's only so much we can do in that, but I'll hopefully open it up for comments and questions at the end. So if you want to draw attention to something in particular that I didn't, or if uh, you have a question, I will do the best to try to answer that question. But here's, here's the few observations I want to make, the general observations. At least one of the key verses in chapter 7 is pretty notable. It's verse 12. Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer, which means the stone of help, uh, which is reflected in uh, this quote, till now the Lord has helped us. So he calls it, sometimes, we've got a song we sing, most hymnals have updated the language, and they've dropped the Ebenezer, but the Ebenezer is a good biblical word. The song is, come thou fount, and the second verse reads, starts off, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. That reference to Ebenezer goes back to this incident in 1 Samuel chapter 7 where the Lord delivered his people from the Philistines who had oppressed them for decades. I mean, there's a 20-year gap from chapter 6 to then chapter 7 opens up and it's been 20 years and Israel's lamenting after the Lord. Life has been difficult for a long time. I hope when life is difficult for me, it doesn't take me 20 years to lament after the Lord and to cry out to him. But it did for them. So this Ebenezer in the song comes from that Ebenezer in Samuel's case. It also says, till now the Lord has helped us, which is also reflected in this second verse, hither by thy help I'm come. My Ebenezer, till now the Lord has helped us. But the old King James translates it hitherto. Hitherto, the Lord has helped us. And I like that hitherto because it's such an interesting word. Hitherto kind of looks back to the past from, from some time in the past up until this moment, this present moment. Hitherto, the Lord has helped us. That's a good word. I don't know how far back Samuel's hitherto goes whether it's going back uh, from the time the Philistines threatened most recently, or whether he's going back through his life, or whether he's going back like hundreds and uh, 900 years to when the Lord first called Abraham to follow him, and he would make of him a great nation. And through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Lots of years have passed, but... If you even go back that far in Israel's history, I think Samuel could say, hitherto the Lord has helped us. It doesn't mean that everything has always gone exactly like they wanted. It doesn't mean there hasn't been death and sorrow and disobedience. But it does mean the Lord has not abandoned or forsaken his people. The Lord's calling and election are without uh, repentance, irrevocable, according to uh, Romans chapter 11, I think it is. Romans chapter 11. 29. So the Lord hasn't forsaken his people. Samuel's able to say, hitherto, the Lord has helped us. Now, the, the other extreme, you, you put together another old King James word, and it looks something like this. God's hitherto is the foundation of God's henceforth, which could be a message next week, but there aren't really a lot of henceforths in the Bible. There's a few. So if we wanted to go short next week, I could probably do a henceforth. But the hitherto provides the basis and the foundation and the momentum for going into a new year saying, henceforth, I can expect certain things. 
I can expect certain things about the goodness and the character and the faithfulness of God. Hitherto he's been faithful. Henceforth he will be faithful. There's a hitherto and a henceforth. And they're great bookends for those that are the people of God. Between the two. So, let's build on this. Let's let's, uh, rehearse what led to this pronouncement by Samuel. Hitherto the Lord has helped us. I've already read the entire chapter, but I want to... I want to kind of pick out some certain things. First of all, it opens with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord. In chapter 7, it just plays a, kind of a small role. It's mentioned, that's how the chapter starts, but there's not a lot of detail given. I suppose most of you know that the Ark of the Covenant, inside are the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone. There should be some manna in there, a sampling of manna. Nobody's allowed to look in there. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is, it's kind of like a chest. These are priests that are carrying it. Uh, on, on top is actually called the mercy seat, and that would be of solid gold. Those are uh, cherubim mercy seat, and that's where on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the priest, the high priest would go in and he'd sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. It's a wonderful image because inside the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments. And if, if you don't have blood on the mercy seat, the Ten Commandments are calling out my sin and your sin, where you have disobeyed God and how God is holy and you, are not, you have no right to be in his presence or expect any goodness from God. The, the tablets of stone are crying out, we're violators of his covenant. Whatever it is, God has revealed to us. We're not Israelites, but in some sense, whatever God has revealed to us, we're violators, we're guilty, and blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat so that we don't bear the full consequence of the law at that point. So the Ark of the Covenant is associated with the presence of God, the holiness of God, more than any other aspect of Israel's worship in the Old Testament. If you've read, and if maybe you're going to do a new Bible reading schedule, and uh, by February or maybe sometime in January, you'll be reading uh, Exodus. And in Exodus, you've got a lot of chapters devoted to what worship will look like under the Old Covenant. Because very explicit instructions are given about how the tabernacle is to be constructed and layers of curtains and, and what is woven into those curtains and, and the articles that are inside the tabernacle, including the Ark of the Covenant and the table of showbread and the altar of incense and a burnt offering altar outside. All this stuff is, is given in, in great detail in Exodus. But out of all those things in which... Israel is to worship God, it's the Ark of the Covenant that is most closely associated with the presence and the holiness of God. And that'll come into play in a little bit, which is why I'm emphasizing that point. Oh, maybe I should have... I, no, back up. Uh, I should mention in Numbers chapter 10, Numbers chapter 10, there's a, a reference which is very interesting. It reads like this. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, so they're getting, the people of all of Israel is getting ready. They're on the move because the Lord is on the move by the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire. Whenever they set out, Moses says, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when the ark rested, Moses said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So they set out. The ark is, 
is the focal point of all their movements. They set out and they're like, Arise, O Lord, let our enemies be scattered. We are the God. We are the people of the God who, who has entrusted or given us this Ark of the Holy Covenant. All right. Joshua chapter 6. When the Israelites first enter into the promised land, they cross the river, which is where this scene is from. They cross. It, it dries up enough for Israel to cross the Jordan River. Uh, carrying, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant, all of Israel follows. And the first city they take in the promised land is the city of Jericho, right? And you know, they're marching around the walls of Jericho day after day, and they're marching in silence, they're marching quietly. And finally, the seventh day, they're blowing trumpets and the walls come tumbling down. But all that procession for all those days is led by the Ark of the Covenant. Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is a sign of, the, of God's presence and power to protect us, preserve us, lead us, uh, allow us to overcome our enemies. That's the ark. Now, the context of 1 Samuel. In chapter 1, you've got uh, Hannah, who is an older woman who has never born a child, and she's praying in the temple, and she's crying out to the Lord, and, and there's a priest, Eli, who thinks she's She's there, and she has no business being there because she's uh, inebriated. She's drunk. She's had too much to drink, and now she's, she's in anguish of soul praying to the Lord. And Eli assures her, the Lord has heard your prayer, and you're going to bear a child. And that child will be Samuel, and Samuel is born. A child in her old age, a child that she thought she would never see. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2... You've got Hannah celebrating and praising God. It's kind of the basis of Mary's song of praise, which we did on Christmas Day, which is hard to believe that was just last week. But uh, last week we did Mary's song of praise. That's based on Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But she's dedicated her, her one and only child to the Lord, to the Lord's ministry. Uh, and so when the child is a little bit older, she takes Samuel to Shiloh, where the Lord's tabernacle is, and she commits him into Eli's care. He's going to be raised kind of in a priestly home. Eli's a priest. Eli is not an altogether bad guy, but he's certainly not altogether good because he's got a couple sons who are priests who are completely oppressing and exploiting their power and position. Uh, they are completely immoral, <laughs> Uh, they're completely taking advantage of people. It's a worst-case scenario. And Eli doesn't discipline his children. And so the Lord is, pronounces judgment upon Eli and his household. You're gonna, I'm going to take away the priesthood from you. Your line will come to an end. That's chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, you have Samuel, who was left in chapter 2 under Eli's care, and he's called by the Lord. That's, it's that story you may have heard where... Uh, he, Samuel's sleeping, <clears throat> and a voice says, Samuel, Samuel. And he runs to Eli and is like, what do you want? And Eli's like, I didn't call you. And that happens several times. And finally, Eli says, that's uh, the Lord calling you. And so he, Samuel goes back to bed, his mat or whatever. He hears Samuel, Samuel, and he says, speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. I don't know that he used King James English, but that's the way I always heard the story. So at any, at any rate, Samuel uh, is called by the Lord. He's going to be a priest and minister as a prophet. He's going to minister as a priest. He's going to minister as a judge. Uh, he's going to be 
one of the key figures in all of the Old Testament, though a lot of times he doesn't get a lot of uh, airplay. That's chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, God's promised judgment falls on Israel because of their idolatry, their sin. It falls on the household of Eli and his sons who die in a battle. Well, his sons die in a battle. Eli is overcome with uh, sorrow and He's appalled at everything that just transpired. He falls over dead. You'll hear about that in just a moment. And the ark of the Lord is captured. The ark of the Lord, the presence of the, the, the ark, which is associated with the presence and the holiness of God, is captured by the Philistines in chapter 4. Now, I want you to listen to the chapter. So if your Bible's open, uh, I'm going to play David Suchet's version of it because he's a better reader than I am and and by this time, we're 10 minutes in, and everybody's like, I stayed up too late last night. And I know we sang, Be Thou My Vision, and waking or sleeping, you're still with me. But I'm trying to keep you on the awake side. So I'm going to have you listen to David Suchet's version of 1 Samuel chapter 4. But he reads in the New International Version, so it'll read a little bit different from what, if you have an ESV. But uh, it's a fascinating chapter. It goes like this. 1 Samuel chapter 4 And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjaminite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli 
who was ninety-eight years old, and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man, and he was heavy. He had led Israel for forty years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because of the capture of the Ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. That's a fascinating story. And now you've got what, was, what we just heard in chapter 4, and you kind of think forward to chapter 7, and you've got bookends where you've got two names, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed, and Ebenezer. Hitherto the Lord has helped us. Quite a reversal between chapters 4 and chapter 7 where we actually started off. Now, it's interesting, Samuel, uh, back in the last century, like 1999, we did the life of Samuel on Sunday mornings. So we didn't do all of 1 Samuel because it's not all about Samuel, the individual himself, but we did the life of Samuel. It took us a while. And and I don't remember hardly anything I teach. Uh, so I don't expect you to remember it either. And then you could ask, well, why do we even learn this stuff if we don't remember it? And the answer is, it kind of it's an answer that when Bob Bolin was here, I remember his, he said, you know, you don't, you don't live off a past meal. You continue to nourish yourself because that's nourishment. And so you gather to hear God's word. And yeah, you're going to forget it but you still gather to hear God's word because that's how you are nourished. But it's really interesting that of all the things I don't remember, I've never forgotten several lessons from 1 Samuel chapter 4. It is such a fascinating chapter. And one of those lessons is, it, they're very applica applicable type lessons, is how, how easy it is for people who are religious or the church, or whatever you want to call it, how we think we can manipulate God to our own advantage, like they did. They, they'd, they'd suffered some losses. We're going to get the Ark of the Covenant. Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. They think they can manipulate God, that God, that God is there for them rather than they are the people of God and they're subservient to him. And the roles kind of get reversed. And that's very evident in 1 Samuel chapter 4 by their attitude. And then beyond that, even a more powerful lesson, and this is probably why I don't forget it, because I see it uh, 
play out in the course of my life probably every year, and that is this. Where there is the absence of a real relationship with a living God, you will fill up that void with caricatures, with uh, charms, with uh, these experiential circumstances that you take great delight in. It will be anything but a living relationship with the real God, and, and it's filled with all this lucky stuff. So that probably where it's as evident as ever is uh, at funerals, that's very common. Uh, somebody passes away, and I hear the craziest stories about you know what they see or what they find or birds outside or flowers or coins or whatever the case may be. There's all this... All this stuff that the Bible doesn't speak of on any level, but you've got to fill up your mind with something. And where there's a real relationship with the living God, there is great hope and there's great comfort. And you don't need all the lucky stuff because your hope is in God and his word. So that's very evident in chapter 4. They're going to bring the lucky charm, Ark of the Covenant, into battle, and they're going to win, and they lose badly. And the Ark of the Lord's Covenant is captured by the Philistines. That brings us to chapter 5, and in chapter 5, the Philistines regret they ever took that Ark of the Covenant. (laughs) They regret it because their God, they put the Ark in their temple, Uh, their God is Dagon, and the and Dagon falls on his face and his hands wind up breaking off. And, and, they're, and they're like, this is a crazy coincidence. Because it's very hard to establish cause and effect relationships. It's, it, I mean, all they have is this boxy looking thing that clearly is associated with some god. But we manipulate the gods, they don't manipulate. So they can't really explain it. And then furthermore, their people are getting breaking out with these tumors boilish tumors and they're dying and becoming sick and so the Philistines have these notable cities and they're like okay we don't want the ark I know it's a great you know should be a great tourist attraction but it is wreaking havoc in our town you take it and it becomes this hot potato where the Philistines are passing it on and wherever the ark is travesty strikes the city that's first Samuel chapter 5 So, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, the Philistines devise this crazy scenario whereby if this is really a thing and there really is a God associated with this ark that we captured, then then it's going to go back to Israel. We're going to put it on a cart with some some, uh, oxen that are still nursing their young so they shouldn't want to go anywhere because they want to be with their young and... So if it leaves, it must be a God thing, and they do that, and the ark leaves with this cart and these oxen, and it goes back to Israel, and they're glad for it. And it goes to Israel, and somebody, believe it or not, or a group of them, look inside the ark, and a bunch of them are struck dead. A bunch of Israelites are struck dead, and they're like, we don't want the ark either. And so they pass it on to this Kiriath Jerim, where we started off in chapter 7. So that's kind of the, the story And then chapter 7, it winds up in one particular spot in Israel, and then 20 years take take place. 20 years, the ark's been in the same spot. Nothing much has changed. It's just there. 
But in chapter 7, it tells me they lamented after the Lord, which is kind of interesting because they're not lamenting after some gift of the Lord, which is easy to do. I have different people will call me at different times or I'll speak with different people. I, I have people, and you probably do too, people lament their circumstances. They lament difficulties in life. They lament setbacks. I lament when my health isn't good. I lament when my finances are, aren't good. I lament when, when relationships I have aren't good. But they're not lamenting all this stuff. They're lamenting after the Lord. Because in this moment, they recognize even if all of life seems so perfect, if we don't have the Lord, we really have nothing. All glory goes to Christ. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. So they lament after the Lord. So Samuel gives certain counsel in this particular situation. Samuel's counsel is returning to the Lord with all your heart. Putting away the foreign gods. So there's an inward change. There's an outward change. Because if God has really gotten a hold of your heart, it's not just, it's not just something you say. It's not just something you feel in the moment. There's real change that takes place. You get rid of the foreign gods. You get rid of the other things that you think you can't live without. You get rid of the, you, you put things in perspective, the things that I can't be happy unless God gives me that thing. And you're okay with letting it go because all I really need is the Lord. Larry Crabb has got a great book on that. It's called Finding God. That all of life competes with the only thing that really matters, and that is finding God. He also tells them to direct their heart to the Lord and to serve him only. And the Lord will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. It's interesting that Samuel says, if this is really happening, and why, would he, why is so Samuel seems so pessimistic? Uh, the language that he actually uses in that verse, it's, uh, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. Why would he use the word if? And it has to be because Samuel knows what's in the heart of men. Unless God is really stirring and changing the heart, we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If the Lord is really stirring in your heart. Real repentance, real revival, real change takes place, not with me being more determined than I've ever been in all of my years in the past. It's me lamenting after the Lord and saying, God, I need you to change my heart. I need you to give me desires and affections that I don't have by myself. It's a work of grace. It's a crying out to that God. And the people respond rightly. They're like, that's exactly what they do. Samuel tells them what to do, and that's exactly what they do in that moment. It tells you that in the text. All the people put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they serve the Lord only. And then Samuel prays for the people. He tells them to gather, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, because all of us, no matter where we're at in life, we still need an intercessor, right? We need a mediator. Samuel's not perfect. He's still a man. He needs a mediator, too. But nobody goes it on their own before God, who is altogether holy. We need a mediator. Samuel's a type of mediator. Christ is the perfect mediator. Christ is the one who intercedes on behalf of his people. Samuel, in some lesser sense, mediates for the people. And there's a pouring out of water, and the people fast. 
<clears throat> now, it's not explicitly told us why they pour out water. Commentators have, I think, good reasoned guesses why they pour out water, and that is that it's demonstrating how important God is in our lives. I'm willing to forsake food. I'm willing to take what is one of the most precious commodities, especially in an ancient arid culture, and that is water. And to take this water and pour it out before the Lord, saying, I need you more than I need water to sustain my life. That's, that's how important the Lord is in that moment. It's so easy for me to want gifts from God, but not really the meant after the Lord just for himself. Regardless of what he cho- whatever pathway he chooses for me, I just want the Lord. So they pour out water, they fast, and then the Philistines catch wind of all that's happening, and they're rounding up an army, and they're going to attack like they've attacked Israel and had them under their thumb for at least 20 years, going back further than that. But at least 20 years, they've been, had Israel under their thumb. The Philistines are doing all this. Samuel's still, still praying. The people are like, you need to pray. Like, this is, out, this is bigger than us. We need help. And then there's the outcome that we read about ultimately in verse 12, where the Lord delivers his people. Samuel raises up a stone, calls it Ebenezer, because hitherto the Lord has helped us. And that's kind of the backstory between all this that's happened in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Now, if we apply all this, I'm going to start with some words from uh, Charles Spurgeon. I didn't put them on the screen. But Charles Spurgeon says this. It is certainly a very delightful thing to mark the hand of God in the lives of ancient saints. How profitable an occupation to observe God's goodness in delivering David out of the jaw of the lion and the paw of the bear. God's mercy in passing by the transgression, iniquity, and sin of Manasseh, who was a king of Judah. God's faithfulness in keeping the covenant he made with Abraham or his interposition on the behalf of dying Hezekiah. But beloved, would it not be even more or just as interesting and profitable for us to remark the hand of God in our own lives? Ought we not to look upon our own history as being at least as full of God, as full of his goodness and of his truth? as much as a proof of his faithfulness and veracity as the lives of any of the saints who have gone before. I mean, there's a wonderful story about God's provision, faithfulness, power. All of that is true. But it shouldn't be lost on us. We ought to be able to reflect back on our lives and say, hitherto the Lord has helped me. I've got a testimony. I can see the hand of God. It hasn't always been easy. Sometimes it's been difficult, but I've learned in whatever state I am, therewith to be content. Whether I'm abounding or whether I'm in in need, whether I have very little, God's provision has always been sufficient to the day. And so, uh, Charles Spurgeon kind of preaches a whole message then on that, how we ought to put ourselves into the story. We ought to have Ebenezer's in our life that we can raise up and say, this is a reminder and a testimony to me as to the faithfulness and goodness of God to me, his child, his son, his daughter. I'm going to open it up for comments and questions here before I proceed to the Lord's Supper. Thoughts, comments, questions? Samuel raises up an Ebenezer. We raise up Ebenezer's 
in our lives, we ought to and we do, one of those would be the Lord's Supper. It's an Ebenezer. It's a reminder. It's, a, it's something given to us to remind us of the Lord's faithfulness. The cross is an Ebenezer. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell you uh, specifically to have crosses as reminders, but they serve as wonderful reminders. So the cross is a reminder, but the Lord's Supper in particular is a reminder of the Lord's faithfulness. He gave his body without reservation, in obedience to his Father. He shed his blood that our sins would be covered, taken away, applied to the mercy seat, so that we're not condemned by the law, but we're set free by grace. The Lord's Supper is a reminder. It's an Ebenezer for the church as to what God has done. We're going to sing the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I think that's next. Well, let me, Romans 5 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, hitherto, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, henceforth. You've kind of got a hitherto, henceforth reference in those verses. Now let's sing, Come Thou Fount.